Welcome to episode 116 of the G2 on 5G. It's the latest insight scoop on everything 5G. We cover six topics in about 20 minutes, and it's brought to you by More Insights and Strategy. I'm Will Townsend, and joining me again this week is fellow analyst Anshul Sag. Let's get started because it's been a uh, week full of lots of news. And my first topic is around AT&T. And so our friend Mike Dano at Light Reading published an article this week. Um, he attended an event that Chris Sambar uh, presented at. Um, Chris runs all of network infrastructure for AT&T. And uh, Chris was talking about uh, the $1.6 billion electricity bill um, that occurs annually to run its mobile network. And uh, he discussed, you know, some ways to minimize that, that OPEX expense. And, you know, I don't think a lot of people understand. I mean, operators spend billions and billions and billions of dollars uh, in CapEx to build out these next generation networks, 5G networks. But, you know, the, uh, the electricity to run them is quite extensive. So, I mean, he talked about you know, the fact that what AT&T is doing now is that during non-peak times in the evenings, uh, very early in the morning, they're actually powering down a lot of their infrastructure to conserve uh, energy and save cost. And it wasn't clear to me like if this is a manual process, but certainly I think there's an opportunity here um, if it is a manual process uh, to automate that. And um, you know, you're already seeing this occur within enterprise infrastructure platforms such as uh, Aruba's Green AP that based on movement within an access point, it actually powers the, the access point down uh, to save energy as well. But I, I just thought it was an interesting article. And uh, what do you think? You know, um, I did see this. I didn't really uh, delve too deeply into it. Um, I do think, you know, I've heard of this methodology being used before mm -hmm. um, what, during, you know, off peak hours. Um, my understanding is that, uh, you know, all operators are looking for ways to improve OPEX and power consumption is basically, you know, number one mm -hmm. um, as far as OPEX goes. Yeah. Um, so I just think that, um, you know, they, they are all looking to be more green because one, it's better for the environment and it's better for the bottom line. Right. Um, and I just think that, you know, there's going to be more and more, um, you know, techniques and technologies, um, that are implemented to, um, you know, reduce power consumption on cellular networks for a multitude of reasons. And I think one of them will also be, you know, like having equipment that doesn't consume as much power yeah. um, also causes it to generate less heat, which is better in hotter environments, which is also a thing that's happening to a lot of us. You know, you and I were just talking before the podcast about how we're both kind of cooking uh, <laughs> in September and, you know, heat environment, you know, affects um, uh, cellular equipment. And I'm sure there's some equipment that was manufactured a couple of decades, decades ago that probably wouldn't work uh, in today's environment with prolonged heat waves. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And, you know, you look at companies like Qualcomm that are pushing up from end device into infrastructure and the small cells and that sort of thing. And companies like Qualcomm have great capabilities with respect to their designs and power management and that sort of thing. Um, the other thing I'll add too is, you know, in addition to, um, you know, being focused on this sort of thing to reduce, uh, you know, OPEX flatly, 
many companies are also very focused on sustainability goals and carbon footprint offsets and that sort of thing. And so this sort of helps in that regard as well. So it's something that I think we'll continue to, to see within the mobile network operator space. But let's get to your first very exciting topic this week. Um, it's, it's Apple season and they had a slew of announcements and there's a lot to unpack there. So I'm just gonna let you take it away. Yeah, so today uh, the iPhone 14 pre-orders started um, and that was as a consequence of the launch that happened a couple of days ago. Um, basically, Apple's launching, you know, four iPhone 14 models. Um, there is no iPhone 14 mini. Um, there's just a, a regular iPhone 14, 14 plus, then there's the 14 Pro and the 14 Pro Max. Mm -hmm. um, they start at $800. Um, but the real big deal um, with these new phones is... Um, from a 5G perspective, new 5G bands. Um, they're adding new band 70 and 26, which are for DISH. Um, yeah. And then there's also band 53, which is what's enabling the new satellite SOS connectivity, mm -hmm. um, which if you didn't catch it, um, during the iPhone 14 launch, there was a rumor that uh, Apple would be launching satellite connectivity with its phones. And I think this has actually been a rumor that's been going around for a couple of years now. Yeah. And um, this is actually it coming out and and being uh, realized. Uh, it's mostly a public safety thing, so it's not really something you can use regularly. Yeah. Um, but it is a, a service that you get for free for two years from Apple, um, and it leverages the Global Star Band 53, um, which is why this phone is adding Band 53, um, and then it also has Band 14, which is uh, AT and T's. Um, well, AT&T's FirstNet. So um, mm -hmm. this phone is actually adding four new bands, um, which is a big deal because that usually doesn't happen all at once. Right. Um, and then because it uh, has satellite connectivity to GlobalStar, um, it's pretty much guaranteed it's going to have, at a minimum, a Qualcomm Snapdragon X65 mm -hmm. 5G modem in it. Uh, right. If not an X70, we'll see. Um, because in order to do satellite connectivity, um, you would need some kind of, you know, interoperability between the modem and, and, and the satellites. And last year, Qualcomm pre-qualified with GlobalStar, which is why uh, Pat and I have been talking about, we're expecting that GlobalStar would be AT&T or would be uh, their partner for, for uh, the iPhone 14, which they are. Um, and then there's, you know, a, a slew of low light camera improvements. Um, actually, the, you know, one big thing to consider is that um, the, um, uh, whatchamacallit, uh, the iPhone 14 does not have the latest processor. So um, only the 14 Pro and Pro Max have the A16, yeah. while the 14 and 14 Plus have the A15 from last year. That said, um, performance-wise, I think they'll actually be almost identical. It will be single-digit difference. Yeah. Um, so most people won't even really notice a difference. Um, it really looks like Apple is focusing on power consumption um, and then this is the, the 14 Pro is also the first time Apple has a always on display, which is something us Android users are very familiar with mm -hmm. um, and have been using for years. Um, so it's nice to see Apple getting that, uh, at least in the top tier. And then um, in terms of display, the new 14 Pro and Pro Max have a new dynamic island, um, which is <laughs> basically be confused with fantasy island, right? I, I've seen a lot of tweets about the, the plane, the plane. I just so, dated myself. You probably don't know that show, man. So, 
So the joke is, I've heard of it. I've, I've seen some episodes. But the joke is, you know, or at least my thought is, you know, they still have the notch on the 14 and 14 plus, but they moved the notch down into the screen and turned it into a dynamic island. And um, the reason why it's called a dynamic island is because they've now turned a weakness into a user interface. Yeah. Um, it's but cool. we'll see how good it is. I pre-ordered mine this morning. Um, so we'll see. I got a 14 Pro Max. Um, so I'll be able to take advantage of the new camera capabilities and see how good the low light performance is. They're claiming double low light performance, yeah. um, which means better low light exposures and shorter low light exposures. And then the other big thing in terms of connectivity was um, they in the U.S. market have gotten rid of the SIM card slot. So you have to use eSIM in the U.S., which is a complicated problem because, um, you know, all three carriers in the U.S. already support eSIM. Um mostly mostly support it um i think the experience is fairly good but it's not perfect i think apple's trying to push these carriers to do better um and also i think they're they're warning other carriers around the world that they're probably going to do this next generation um with with them as well a- across the world that said i think apple is is also being careful to consider that if they did this globally today um they would have had a lo- loss of a lot of customers because you know yeah. a lot of people around the world travel with multi sims and you know, a lot of countries still don't support eSIM, which might be the reason why they're doing this and why they're pushing this eSIM only approach. But another thing to consider is a lot of people travel to the US to buy iPhones and then travel back and use them at home. And a lot of those um, users are doing it because taxes are really high at home or prices are high or the combination of, and you know, iPhone costs more than double where they live. Yeah. And uh, that's why I think that, you know, it's gonna really hurt those people who would normally come to the US and try and. Um, you know, buy a U.S. iPhone uh, that's got no SIM slot. Yeah, you know, um, I've had an eSIM experience, so I, I've got an older generation iPhone. I've got um, an, an eSIM activated and a physical SIM, and the the process uh, to go through that, and uh, I won't name the carrier, was arduous to say the least. And so, there is going to be a learning curve here. And, you know, traditionally the carriers have frowned upon eSIM because they lose somewhat, you know, a level of control in sort of monetizing, you know, that, that pop. So, but yeah, but Apple's going to force it. In fact, um, I spent time with uh, Jen Robinson just yesterday who runs all of AT&T consumer wireless and broadband. And they're kind of viewing this as an opportunity. It can provide some degrees of flexibility, even for international travelers. So folks in the U.S. that are traveling abroad. So it'll be interesting to see how that all winds out. The other comment I'll make on the satellite connectivity, as I dug into it more, um, the service initially is only going to connect someone with a first responder. And it's, it's pretty slick. So, you know, Apple has laid out all of the necessary infrastructure to do that. And the interface looks pretty cool. Like I, I read, a, I think it was a TechCrunch article they had some images and so they've sort of pre-populated, you know, the different responses that someone would use. Um, initially when the news broke, I was thinking, okay, is this going to disrupt um, Garmin and what they're doing with their inReach um, system? But it's not because with inReach, you can subscribe, you typically pay about 30 bucks a month when you activate it and you have, um, you have texting, you have two-way, you know, texting, um, and it's not just with an emergency, you know, response provider. It can be with a loved one or whatever, if you're camping or whatever, which is important for me because, you know, I have property in Colorado. But I think it's a it's a logical first step. And, you know, 
you know, I, I also read online that there were a lot of complaints that, you know, you know, the actual, you know, other than the Fantasy Island feature, there wasn't a lot of substance um, to the announcement. I mean, I'm still waiting to upgrade my iPhone uh, once Apple decides to do a photo foldable. But, you know. Well, the one thing I would add is with eSIM, there will be, I think, added competition for the mm -hmm. carriers because it will be easier to switch carriers with mm -hmm. eSIM especially with like T-Mobile right. and Verizon both being like, here, just download an app and you're yeah. activating us. But yeah. um, what it does also do is it makes it harder to switch from iPhone because you now no longer have a physical SIM. You can just pop into a new yeah, phone. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so there's, there's, there's a lot of interesting angles going on, um, but those are the big takeaways. And honestly, I think as far as iPhones go, this might be the most significant iPhone um, in terms of connectivity improvements since the 12. Because yeah. the 12 obviously added 5G, but right. you know I don't really see them doing anything crazy in terms of connectivity beyond this at this point. Yeah, I know you're absolutely right. I mean, from a connectivity perspective, you know the the additional support of all of that new spectrum, um, the spectrum bands, is quite impressive. I think sometimes that the value of that gets lost with the average consumer. So that's probably why I'm seeing just you know a lot of like ho hums, you know about about the totally. Yeah, and I think a lot of those are pretty valid too, right? It's it's a lot of incremental upgrades. Yeah, it is, it is. But but I, I do like the Fantasy Island feature, so I, I will look forward to that because like it got me staring at the notch on. I think I've got an iPhone 12 Pro Max or something like that. So I'll I'll probably be up for an upgrade here, you know, before too long. But let's move to my second topic this week, and I want to share a little bit about um, a recent experience I had um, at the Curiosity Lab at Peachtree Corners, and how 5G is playing a role there. So Peachtree Corners is uh, northeast of Atlanta, and um, it's a small community. It's, um, you know, it's only been incorporated for about 10 years. But what they have done is they've deployed a pretty impressive um, IoT lab. And it dates back to actually Sprint's involvement before the T-Mobile merger. Uh, one of the reasons why it's called Curiosity is that, you know, Sprint's initial IoT program was branded Curiosity as well. Right. But T-Mobile is basically powering a complete layer cake spectrum footprint to allow the lab to do a number of different things. One, um, they have actually a road track that's laid out around the perimeter of the lab, and they're doing a lot of work with respect to autonomy. They have a, a company that's there called Beep, B-E-E-P. Uh, Beep runs an autonomous shuttle platform. They're in production in several locations around the country, including Peachtree Corners. And uh, Lake Nona, uh, Florida, is their, their biggest production deployment. They have others planned um, down the road. But I got to, to ride in the shuttle, and it's quite impressive. There, there is a person on the shuttle that holds almost like a game controller in case they need to take over for safety reasons. But it's completely autonomous. And along this road track, there's all that necessary infrastructure that's required to make it safe. And, you know, Tesla gets knocks, you know, on its, uh, its semi-autonomy and where it's at. I know you own a, a Model 3, but, you know, the, the road telemetry, you know, the computer vision, all of this is necessary to make it um, very, very safe. So um, I spent a full day there, um, spent time with Beep, spent time with uh, Bosch. You know, and, you know, Bosch is, uh, is, is a company that a lot of people are familiar with, uh, with respect to the quiet dishwashers. I've owned a, a few of those over the years, but 
they're really, they're an innovator in the IoT space and they have a full platform that supports connected devices and their, their smart camera solutions are quite impressive and they help with a lot of uh, traffic management. And so at the end, you know, I, I could go on and on and on, but what, what I'll do to sort of, sort of end, um, you know, my share here is that I did write an article, it's published to Forbes. If you go hit my, um, my Twitter feed at Willtown Tech, you can read more about it. It's about an eight minute read, but I think it's worth it. And honestly, it, it's a model that I think other very tech savvy towns like San Diego, like Austin, Texas should adopt. They're not, they're not focused on collecting money up front. They're in it for the long, kind of the long haul is what I call it. And so they're providing this, this great platform to bring mature stage startups and more established companies into to really investigate and birth smart city use cases. And by all judgment, you know, Peachtree Corners is leading the charge, you know, with respect to uh, being, you know, the U.S.'s, you know, first smart city. But anything to add to that before we move to your first or your second topic? I have never heard of Peachtree Corners. Okay. So that's already a plus for them that they're getting some visibility with this. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, I, it looks like it's a, an Atlanta suburb. Yep. Um, and yeah, I think, um, you know, there's lots of opportunity for, for, com for cities to work with, um, you know, accelerators to bring um, new and innovative industries. You know, I think being in San Diego, we're very lucky to have so many tech companies and, and so many startups yeah. and such a healthy ecosystem. Yeah. Um, but there's never, you know, it's never enough. Um, and there's always better things you can do as a, as a city or as a, a company to, um, you know, create these kinds of labs um, to foster growth. And I think that this seems like a really good public-private partnership. Yeah, no, it's a great model. But let's move to your second topic. You want to talk about Lockheed Martin and AT&T and uh, what they're doing to test private 5G for helicopter applications. Yeah, so they're using... Um, a private 5G network to connect to Black Hawk helicopters, um, which are made by Sikorsky, which is part of the Lockheed um, group. Um, and basically what they were doing with this 5G um, POC is that they were trying to download helicopter data um, from the helicopter to their, 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 their systems. And previously it took them 30 minutes to download all this data because it's a lot of data. Yeah. Um, and now with um, the new 39 gigahertz 5G millimeter wave radio, um, they were able to transfer this data in five minutes. Wow. So, you know, it saves time. It, it, you know, it reduces um, the amount of time people are waiting to look at the data, right? Mm -hmm. um, just transferring the data alone is kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, but they're also doing things um, in uh, Colorado testing 5G um, with it, what the defense giant calls 5G.mil, which we've talked about in the past. Um, and that in that separate test, um, they were also using uh, transmitted data from the Sikorsky um, private 5G network through VPN to the network in Colorado. So they're able to transmit this data from, um, I think this was in Connecticut, um, yeah. all the way over to Colorado securely, um, which which is fun, interesting, because they were also using a, uh, a Cradle Point 5G gateway um, mm -hmm. connected to a laptop to transfer this data. So, you know, there's a lot of different components to this 
um, you know, chain, but ultimately, um, you know, this, you know, AT&T is enabling um, potentially, you know, the US military um, or even Lockheed Martin, because, you know, the reality is Lockheed Martin's not using these helicopters, right? They're, yeah. they're selling these helicopters um, and then the military is responsible for operating and repairing them. So yeah. ultimately what this ends up being is a ability to service and operate these helicopters in a more efficient and cost-effective manner. Yeah, you know, and I see an application here for commercial aviation as well. So early on, one of one of WiMAX's, uh, you know, targeted use cases for OFDM was um, to allow like, you know, uh, an airplane once it lands to download its logbook, right? Because they, you know, they have to do all that for maintenance and that sort of thing for commercial aviation. And it was quite time consuming. Obviously, WiMAX was, you know, little, you know, little behind the times and it's, it's, since, uh, it's since evaporated. But I see the application of a private network within an airport to do that for commercial aviation, speed that. I mean, a lot of, a lot of the logbook stuff has been manual. And so to digitize that and be able to download it very quickly, that should improve the reliability uh, of, of aircraft. And, you know, you and I are road warriors, just like Patrick, our, our chief uh, analyst and founder. And um, that could reduce potentially uh, equipment issues and that sort of thing. It'd be nice if we could eliminate the weather delays. Uh, flying back recently, I got hit with an equipment issue, a weather delay, and then a, an air traffic control spacing issue. So I got the the, the triple whammy there. But um, but yeah, it's it, it's it's promising what they're doing there. And um, and certainly, you know, Lockheed Martin is a defense contractor, but you know, I'm, I'm sure Boeing and, and Airbus are are all over this as well. But let's move to my third and final topic. I want to talk about Orange or Orange and how they're forging some new partnerships to leverage up and ran uh, within a 5G standalone trial. And, but the question is, will it see production? So I read about this, this was on uh, Mobile World Live and it broke this week. So Orange is striking agreements with NEC and Mavenir uh, to do just this. And it's a, it's a two-year pilot. Um, yeah, they actually announced it initially at Mobile Con uh, World Congress 2021. So they're, they're well into a year here. And, um, you know, I'm not surprised to see, you know, NEC is, is emerging as a, uh, a big player in this space uh, within primarily the Japanese market. And, you know, we've talked about Mavenir. Um, they uh, financially, they, they kind of hit a wall here, but they're not going to go away anytime soon. So, you know, it appears to me that, that Orange has picked, you know, two pretty solid partners to, to move forward. So any thoughts? No, I think this is just a um, you know another potential opportunity for Orange to um, you know find opportunities for Open Rand to save them money. Yeah. Um, we'll see. You know, I, I think that I've seen so many of these uh, Open Rand partnerships that uh, at this point uh, I'm I'm waiting more for deployments than I am for partnerships. Right. Yeah, yeah, and that you know I read that as again, again it's another proof of concept, and you know you know, one thing that, you know, we all have to kind of bear in mind is that at least for, you know, the established, you know, mobile network operators with their brownfield deployments, they, they made the decision on RAN three to four years ago. I mean, it isn't just like they started this 5G journey. Um, it's been, it's been a long process. And so I think where you're going to see open RAN really shine is, this, is within these greenfield deployments. Like, 
within, um, you know, Dish and Rakuten and Reliance. And, you know, so, you know, the more established, you know, operators like Orange, these are going to be kind of kick the tires, POCs. Maybe, maybe in a 5G advanced, you know, kind of deployment, you know, several years down the road, it, it might kind of factor in the, in the things. But uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how all this gets into production, at least with 5G. But with that, let's move to your third and final topic. You want to talk about NTT Docomo and a demonstration with Qualcomm. And I think yeah, you so, want to talk about Samsung and Sony as well, right? Yeah, so this was a um, NTT Docomo um, demonstration of millimeter wave operating with mid-band in 5G standalone. Mm -hmm. um, and they were able to do true carrier aggregation over 5G standalone. Um, and they were able to achieve this with uh, four different devices. Actually, yeah, four different devices, Samsung uh, S22, S22 Ultra, then a Sharp Aquos, and a Sony Xperia 1 4. Um, so th three different manufacturers all running Qualcomm chipsets. Um, and they were actually able to achieve up to 4.9 gigabits per second download speeds mm. and 1.1 gigabits upload speeds, which are pretty oh, crazy when you consider that's the crazy. That's crazy, man. Really <laughs> fast. Um, yeah. And I, I believe it's a commercial network. Okay. Um, and they used NEC as their... Um, infrastructure provider to build their standalone network. Yeah. Um, so they've been doing a lot of testing and um, yeah, I, I think it's pretty crazy that they're getting, you know, almost five gigs down and one gig up. Um, and this is, you know, kind of the, 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 the future of 5G if we really, you know, build out the networks to what's possible yeah. um, with enough spectrum and enough backhaul. Um, yeah. But I wouldn't expect most users to achieve these kinds of speeds. Um, anytime soon, but I, I I truly believe that like you know standalone has the the capability um, to deliver, it, and we're seeing it already. Um, yeah. Obviously, this is a very you know cherry picked uh, top of the um, you know opportunity uh, in terms of what what the technology can enable, but right. this is the pinnacle. Yeah, you know, and it demonstrates the power of standalone. And, you know, and I've, I've probably mentioned this, you know, half a dozen times on previous podcasts, but, you know, the true potential of 5G is when we get to standalone, marrying that core and the RAN together. And, I mean, that's going to provide the absolute, you know, best speeds, you know, lowest latency, best performance. And to your point, this may be a cherry-picked uh, example but it really demonstrates, you know, the true the true promise of 5G once we get to standalone. So, but hey, buddy, it was another great podcast this week. Why don't you take us home? Absolutely. We hope our viewers and listeners found this week's topics interesting. If anyone out there would like to provide insights on a specific 5G topic for a future podcast, please reach out to us on social media. Will is at Will Tontech, and I'm at Anshal Sog. We hope you have a great weekend, and please tune in again next week.